Welcome to another episode of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we want to welcome back William Irwin. Of course, you know, he's a professor of philosophy at King's College in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. And he's best known for originating the philosophy and popular culture book genre with Seinfeld and philosophy, a book about everything and nothing in 1999, and The Simpsons and Philosophy, The Doe of Homer in 2001. Uh, William's latest books are Little Siddhartha, God is a Question, Not an Answer, and Both And. And his newest book, out now, is called The Meaning of Metallica, Ride the Lyrics. Welcome, William. Cool. Welcome Thanks for back. having me, guys. And please call me Bill. Yeah. Yeah, man. And then, you know, every time Bill comes on, we have to mention this. Bill was our first ever guest a million years ago, which is like super cool because now you're our only second ever three-time guest. Wow. This is getting like the Saturday Night Live <laughs> thing, right? Where you get a special jacket and Steve Martin comes out and right where after I don't know how many times you have to host Saturday Night Live. Saturday Night Live with Bill <laughs> Irwin. We should like we should actually do something yeah. like that, like have like something to commemorate, like for our guests. That'd be <laughs> that'd be pretty interesting. Once we get bigger, we got to do something like yeah. that. <laughs> so, but yeah, man. So obviously, really great to have you back. Timers up. Club. So right, it's right now. It's the Three Timers Club. Who else is in the Three Timers Club with me? Helen De Cruz. Oh, Helen is awesome. Yeah. I'm not mm-hmm. worthy. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Yeah, man. So obviously so happy to have your book and so happy to have read it. So, um, okay. I want to kind of pace myself because I have like a million thoughts about it. And I want to start off first with a quote, but just before I even get into that, man, I want to say this is one of my favorite books of the year so far. So it was like, for me, I really don't like music books and books like about music because I feel like the lyrics are usually pretty self-explanatory, but with Headfield and Metallica, it's not really like that. Right. So there's a little bit of ambiguity here. It's kind of hard to figure out. So I really, really appreciated the philosopher's touch here because there's a lot of it that I feel like I couldn't have deciphered on my own. And to begin with, which is kind of the passage that I want to start with going into one of the Unforgiven songs, you know, when I was thinking about just Unforgiven, First of all, I love Unforgiven. Unforgiven is one of my favorite songs, the first one. Um, but then when I would listen to them, you know, I would think about what does this actually mean? So the first one is pretty self-explanatory. The other ones I actually couldn't get. Like, so until I read these chapters in your book, I actually had no idea what the second two were about. I was like, okay, it seems like he's kind of in love and he's really upset with somebody or whatever it is, right? But the first song, which is super interesting, right? It starts out with this guy who's really sort of regretful of the fact that other people in his mind have made him live a life that he didn't want to live. And the idea is obviously you know, you are all unforgiven because you've put me in this sort of cage that I couldn't find myself out of. Right. But then going into the second and the third songs, you find himself, you find him talking about different relationships and how they may have affected him and sort of what, what that kind of meant to him in terms of his own journey and what that meant to him in terms of what he finds, uh, like for his life meaning to be right. And then, so I want to actually start off with the third one and then we could kind of work our way back. So this is a passage from Bill's book, Bill writes, Headfield sings, they've all gone away. They've gone away. All his life, the narrator has sought to escape the the tyranny of the anonymous day. This is where the first unforgiven starts off. The people who demand this conformity and crush his spirit. Now he has escaped them, but he finds that they were not the only cause of his problems. With no one left to point his finger at, the the narrator wails, forgive me, forgive me not. Why can't I forgive me? 
There is no easy answer to that question, but at least he finally realizes that he is unforgiven too. He has wronged himself as much or more than anyone else has wronged him. So love that. One of my favorite passages in the book. And Bill, can you tell us a little bit about what this song means and the fact that it kind of differs from what we normally think of with sort of interpersonal discord, where people tend to point fingers at each other, obviously, than rather looking at themselves and, you know, looking at the fact that they are the narrators to a pretty large extent of their own lives. Mm. Well, that, that there's something very human about that. When, when things go wrong, to look outward, to point the finger and blame other people, institutions, whatever it may be. And often enough, those people warrant some blame. Uh, but this Unforgiven Three uh, really is about the, the breaking point where the, uh, the narrator realizes that he's wronged himself as well as having been wronged. And uh, he's gotten, in a sense, what he wanted, gotten rid of those people who are weighing him down and making demands and trying to put him in a box. And uh, he's still not happy. And part of it is that he can't forgive himself. Can't, I think the theme that runs through uh, the, the Unforgiven trilogy and through a lot of Metallica's music is authenticity. Uh, and uh, so in the first one, he's blaming other people for not allowing him to become his authentic self. And by the third one, there's the realization that uh, he needs to, to forgive and reconcile with himself because he bears uh, enough of the blame for the way in which he's lived his life and the choices that he's made. Yeah, man. And it's like, for me, I felt like that applied so deeply because I found myself thinking about all of the times, especially as a teenager, even at some points too, as an adult, where I would think of all of the reasons why I wasn't or would never be successful. And it was always some external factor. It was always like, you know, some genetic deficiency, or it was the fact that I didn't come from like a good enough family. I remember thinking about how like, you know how when kids grow up, a lot of times their parents have like put them to, I don't know, karate, or they give them like piano lessons or violin lessons. And I remember always bemoaning the fact that I never had had that as a kid i was like why couldn't my parents like give a shit about me enough to like you know push me into something great right i could have been a great i don't know piano player or something for me i i can relate to that but in the sense that my family always pushed me towards things i didn't want to do which is fine when you're a kid it's fine you should be exposed to things you're not used to you're not comfortable with expand your comfort zone that kind of thing that's a beautiful thing but yeah even later in life when i wanted to pursue things like maybe even, you know, the creation of this podcast, let's mm -hmm. say. And this was years ago before we even started. Uh, I, I had ideas that were similar to kind of what we're doing now. Mm -hmm. No support from anyone. <laughs> it was like, but yeah, my family was totally saying like, no, 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 no. Take the beaten path. Mm -hmm. Don't, don't try to do something new. Do, you know, there's a reason it's the beaten path. People have been successful, you know, either being a doctor, a lawyer, uh, a psychotherapist, let's say there are there are ways to do the things that, you know, are established ways of, uh, of being right, but things that aren't established. That was think that those were things that they weren't cool with right and in that sense, you know, at the time, at least I maybe maybe I've sort of resolved this a little bit with them my parents are cooler now now that they see that, you know, there's something going on with the podcast but yeah before. They, they were also like unforgiven in a sense, you know, mm -hmm. so, yeah. No, that, that, that's right. And I mean, I resonate with that. My, my choice uh, to study philosophy and, and to go into philosophy in a way, I mean, my, my father was a businessman uh, and didn't like it and, and had encouraged me 
to choose something that that I would like or better yet love doing. But there was a healthy dose of skepticism about uh, about philosophy and becoming a professor and and what's that and what are your chances and and mm-hmm. all of that kind of thing, right? Uh, and and much more so from from my mother. Uh, so so I, I resonate with that. Uh, and in terms of where, where the support is and what where the support isn't, but uh, you know you can get to a certain point in, in middle age. And I think of the narrator of the unforgiven three as, as being a guy in, in middle age, right. Uh, who is resentful of whatever box he's put in, you know, been put into a uh, corporate uh, wage slave driving the minivan, uh, you know, and, and whatever else and wants to break free of it and do whatever that might be. Right. It's left uh, nicely ambiguous so that we can, you know, make it a podcast or a professor or whatever uh, that might be. But then realizing that that's not the only uh, that's not the only problem that that he's faced, that that he is uh, or, you know, she is to blame for uh, where he is and how he is internally as well. Yeah, man. And especially when it comes to Unforgiven 3, I think, you know, it's so interesting when I used to listen to Unforgiven songs, it was actually Unforgiven 1. And I guess maybe this maps the trajectory of my development in this, I think it would say a significant way. When I would listen to Unforgiven 1, right, that completely resonated with me. I was like, yeah, you know, fuck them, right? They're trying to get me to conform. (laughs) And so it's like, of course, right? Like, these are the the reasons why I'm not happy, right? It's like sort of they, right? These people outside of you. But then, you know, reading your chapter on emotional isolation, I was thinking like, wow, you know, I mean, okay, in some sense, yes, that is true, right? Like people do guide you to a certain direction. Like, I mean, not really even so much my parents, but like, you know, just society, whether, you know, you're talking about your teachers, uh, your employer, whomever. But the point there is, is that when I was thinking about the chapter on emotional isolation and I forget, Unforgiven uh, 3, I'm, I really resonated with that figure who distances himself from like the people around them because he's always dreaming of something bigger. And Alan and I always have these conversations about where like I'm thinking of the podcast going, where like I want my blog to be. And honestly, man, what's, I guess, kind of shitty is that a lot of times I disconnect myself from the people around me because I'm always thinking about what I could be doing otherwise, whether it's sort of working on my business, whether it's uh, like, again, you know, trying to find ways to get like different types of guests on our podcast, which, you know, I always do. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, but it's also like to the detriment of my relationships at times. And, you know, it's like, it, it's, I guess it's an unflattering kind of mirror image of narcissism because like yeah. on the one, right. Because on the one hand, I do know that there's a part of me that's always going to be an ordinary person, but on the other end, right. There's always this other part that says yeah but what if right what if you spend less time here and then more time there right but then when you're thinking about this song and i love the metaphor the nautical metaphor right the metaphor of the ship where it's like it seems like i'm heading somewhere and i think i know where i'm going but to be honest even though i'm sort of away from the anchor and obviously away from a lot of the people around me i really don't know where i'm going or what the hell i'm doing i'm really just kind of throwing dice into the wind and hoping that something rolls or a good number rolls rather well, what's good is at least if you deviate from what you've been doing mm-hmm. and you do some other kind of path, you definitely will head towards a different destination. Yeah. Know, well, will it be better? That's that's true. Mm-hmm. But at least you guarantee a different result. Yeah. There's a lot of people who do the same thing. There's that classic quote. You do the same thing over and over again, uh, expecting a different result. That's that's the definition of insanity. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least, you know, if you take a different path, although you don't know where it could go. Yes. Maybe it could lead you to a worse place. Yep. At least you'll have a different outcome. 
And then it takes you away from that insanity of doing the same thing over and over again and not having something different happen. Yeah. Yeah. So Bill, I mean, in terms of your thoughts, right? So because the American dream is that in some sense, right? You sort of go away from the mundane and you create something phenomenal. So in your mind, right, when we're thinking about that, how do we kind of make sense of the fact that, okay, on the one hand, we're sort of these uh, kind of just like ordinary suburban type guys, right? Who have pretty decent lives. But on the other hand, the way that we kind of, we're sort of brought up in the culture and I can't really just blame the culture, but whatever, I'll just say this anyway, but we're brought up in a culture that teaches us to dream big, right? How do we sort of reconcile the two? Because I can't do it. I still can't figure it out. Mm-hmm. It, it's so tough, right? Uh, because it, right, it, it's both Im- impulses to be extraordinary on the one hand and, and to conform on the other, to be the big dreamer and yet to have your feet firmly planted on the earth and, and all of that kind of thing, right? I thought what you said just before, Leon, was was really uh, insightful about yourself. And it, it's true, I think, for most of us who indulge dreams of, of one sort or another, that we can end up being pretty shitty to people around us uh, who really matter uh, in pursuit of something that if, if we got it would only be most important if we could share it with those very same people. Uh, and if we've alienated them, uh, by the time we get what we want uh, and achieve, it's, it's a very empty achievement. And uh, James Hetfield's own life story and trajectory really mirrors that in, in terms of uh, what he did uh, to some of his bandmates and to his family, uh, you know, in, in, in the midst of, of trying to become this mega whatever rock star or, or whatever it may be. And uh, I, I think so much of it is a matter of perspective uh, in, in growing and, uh, and growing older. Uh, I, th- I think it makes some real sense to be hell bent uh, on a dream at a certain point in life, but then to have a certain sense of responsibility for the people around you uh, and putting them first at another stage in life. And, I don't know. Uh, I'm approaching uh, a later stage in life where my my kids are getting older. I can see a point where they'll be uh, out of the house and I'm not as directly responsible for them as frequently as I am now. And and then then what becomes important to me and and what do I do then? Uh, But I guess what I've figured out for myself is that uh, my wife and, and my children and, and, and my friends uh, are, are really what's most important and not uh, accolades or applause that comes from the outside. Mm. But uh, just curious, right? And it's okay, obviously, if you don't feel comfortable talking about it. But like, in terms of the way your life's turned out, how is that, if at all, how is it different for some of the dreams that you had when you were just starting out as a writer, as a philosopher? Like, what did you sort of envision your life or wanting your life to be and how did it differ? I, I mean, it was much more grandiose in a way. I really thought or hoped or dreamed at some point that I'd be this kind of public figure uh, that, uh, you know, I'd be, you know, causing stirs and uh, creating, uh, you know, I've published a couple of novels and things like that. I mean, and they're, they're good enough for, for what they are, but they're not New York Times bestsellers. They're not cultural movers and and uh and shakers uh and you know would my life have been better if uh if i were some kind of uh, if i had made the the huge like james hetfield level impact uh, on the world 
uh, you know, probably not. I'm not sure how responsibly I would have handled it. Uh, you know, my, my, my ego can get away with me uh, with the modest success that, that, I, that I did have. So maybe it's a blessing in disguise. It certainly is helpful uh, for me to look back on it and say, if I had gotten everything I wanted, <laughs> I might be dead or, or whatever. I mean, who knows? Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it also sort of uh, kind of goes into the I don't know if it's an argument per se, but it's sort of the dichotomy of being like a generalist and a specialist. So, um, I mean, look, I don't want to I want to try my best not to necessarily point anyone out, but because you did mention the New York Times bestsellers list, I'm just going to say a lot of the times the books on those lists aren't that great. Uh, so what you'll have is that even though, unfortunately, um, or I guess maybe even fortunately, so these people like do sell a lot of books and, you know, they get a ton of fanfare or whatnot. If you're actually a specialist in their field, and what they're doing, a lot of this stuff isn't new. So like uh, I had a conversation this morning with uh, Chris Boutte, who was one of our guests, I think it was like two months ago. Mm -hmm. uh, he has the Rewired Soul podcast. So he was, uh, he mentioned something about like the book, The Body Keeps the Score by Bezel Vanderkolk. Mm -hmm. So he's like this famous trauma therapist. And so what's interesting about Bezel is that like, so the book was a New York Times bestseller, I think for like four years in a row or something, like some crazy amount, right? Like just unimaginable. So I remember when I read this book the first time around thinking like, oh my God, this is going to be like phenomenal first of all it's like a huge book it's pretty fucking dense right mm -hmm. that's number one um but then i was thinking okay this guy's a trauma expert like this book must be phenomenal like this is kind of it this must be like the bible of psychology right so i remember reading it and at first it starts off pretty great right so it's pretty steeped in science for probably maybe the first like two three chapters something like that and then it just completely falls off the wagon where not only does he start endorsing the idea of repressed memories and he starts saying well you know there's a lot of science to back it not true uh then he goes into the thyroid the therapies he recommends. So he says exposure therapy is garbage, but you should try EMDR, even though EMDR is a form of exposure therapy with not much else to offer on top of being a cult, which is another story. And then on top of that, he also recommends yoga, whatever, right? So point is, as you're going through the book, I'm literally wondering how in the world is this a bestseller? So I get it. I understand that he's a phenomenal writer and he's definitely very eloquent in speech, right? So if I'm a lay person and I pick up this book and let's say I've never read a science journal before, I would love it. I'd be like, wow, like this is great this explains it in an easily digestible way and it's packed with information but how much information is there is like or how much credible information is there is i think a whole other question so it's sort of like when we think about grandiosity right i think a lot of times and i mean you tell me what you think bill uh, a lot of times it's sort of balanced with the fact that even though these people attain something that's so like seemingly phenomenal if you actually dig into the details it's actually kind of shit well, I mean, that, that's true enough. And the, the analogs to music are, are clear, right? I mean, the, the stuff that is at the top of the, of the charts, usually pop music is very disposable, easy, right. uh, quality-wise, often not, not very good. And this is one of the remarkable things uh, about Metallica and one of the things that got them in trouble with a lot of their fans at various points along the way in their career is that they had made it their mission really from the first album, at least through the third, to succeed on their own terms, to do music uh, that was uh, more substantial, faster, heavier, deeper uh, than music that was uh, in, in the same genre and, and around, right? They're, they're uh, always on about uh, following our instincts, not a trend, go against the grain until the end is the, the lyrics from Damage Incorporated on Master of Puppets, the third album. 
and and they really kind of did that. Uh, so I mean, and that's what we all uh, sort of want, right? And sure, that's what I dreamed for myself as well from growing up listening and watching them and and others who succeeded, not. Uh, catering to the uh, the lowest common denominator or simplicity formula or something like that, but doing what they really wanted uh, and getting there. Now, I, I, I've I've never done that, right? Never uh, written something uh, that was just so kind of against the grain, and yet people loved it and came to me. I mean, that's that uh, that's some heady stuff if you get there, right? Mm. It's like the existential uh, yeah. hero. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Right. And, and so, of course, this is sort of where Metallica and, and Metallica steadfastly refused to make a video uh, up until their fourth album, which was, you know, uh, at the time MTV was courting them and everything else. And, and so, I mean, this is, you know, this is some really admirable, cool uh, screw you punk rock attitude kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, the, the history of the band after that uh, was the history of doing things that became more and more mainstream in some ways uh, that lost a lot of fans, gained a lot of new fans, you know, was fairly and unfairly ridiculed as selling out and all of that. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. You know, no, God. So, Kind of to switch gears. Just Wait, can I just bit. then say one more thing? Okay, okay. That. Yeah, before, okay. So you know what this reminds me of? So uh, we had Jeff Jarrett, the wrestler on our podcast, like I think it was in November. And so so he has a really great podcast. So his podcast is called uh, My World, but it's really about like the wrestling industry. And uh, so what it made me think about was like, so he talked about TNA, which was at the time, the second, like, um, let me just be clear, not because at the time it's pretty vague. Uh, so in the early to mid 2000s, and I think even the early 2010s, it was like the second secondary company to the World Wrestling Entertainment Company, World Wrestling Federation, whatever you'd want to call it. Um, so like for Jeff Jarrett, right? He was like, look, man, we had a niche, right? So we were never going to appeal to like the broad base, right? So people who liked professional wrestling, like really like professional wrestling for the most part, they didn't actually care for the WWE. They might have like tuned in every once in a while, but that wasn't the point, right? So he's like, for our base, we actually had a lot of like income from what we did because we had a rabid fan base. And this goes back to like extreme championship wrestling, very similar with them too right so he's like look we had an we had a pretty rabid fan base and there were people that we were going to make a decent amount of money off of however right these weren't people that were going to make everybody multi-millionaires right however right we decided to when the company sold we brought in like new people and they were like oh, okay let's now compete with the wwe and so a lot of the kind of insiders were like yeah we shouldn't do that we can't compete with the wwe like what are you doing like that's never that's never going to work right wwe is just like mass like it's popular entertainment right it's literally for mostly your casual fan it's for like the person who sometimes tunes in sometimes doesn't it's like for kids right just for people who are just deeply into pop culture he's like that's not what we're doing we're providing an alternative we're not providing competition and so these people are like no no we have to grow right we have to make money okay so he's like what happens is we bring in hulk hogan at the time uh we bring in eric bischoff and so what they do is so uh, you know like for wrestling there's like a storyline and as it progresses you know people keep up with it right so he's like literally as we brought these people in eric bischoff goes on camera and he says something like yeah forget the old tna forget all about that right forget all the old writers we're done with that we're moving on and jeff is like oh my god man when i heard him say that it was essentially saying 
to all the old fans, fuck you. We're done with you because we don't make any money off of you. Now we're moving on to these other people. And he's like, what happened is what you would think, like in turn, you would think, um, so you would get, you know, like as the program kind of goes on, it would reach a wider fan base and obviously it grows and then improves, right? He's like, what happened was we stayed stagnant. And the, re- and the question is why, right? And the thing is like, because what happened was there was probably a substitute where you had some of the older fans leaving and then they were replaced by some of the newer fans. But at the end of the day, that doesn't equate with growth. You're just replacing people. So he's like, great. We lost our rabid fan base. So most of the people there are kind of casual fans. Nobody's that excited to be there on camera. You don't actually see like people going wild and people going crazy. It doesn't feel like a family atmosphere anymore. Literally, it's just another corporation run by people who only care about the bottom line. So going into Metallica, right? I'm wondering, how did they deal with that? Because I know you, you, Go ahead. I have to just uh, obviously, Bill, please, of course, but uh, I have to say this. Uh, the difference between Metallica and let's say TNA in your mm-hmm. example is Metallica is heralded as like one of the paragons of metal, sure. like forever. Even even the people who were diehard fans who saw the changes that Metallica were making, like, oh, OK, now they're on now they're on MTV. Now they're selling out, you know, even those people. Yeah, of course, they were butthurt. They were upset. Right. But. I promise you Metallica's influence and like how good they were. It was so powerful that I promise you they did not. Those fans were just upset, but I'm sure they stuck with them. You think they left? Bill, you can tell the story. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, a lot left, right? When, when you hit the black album, right? That, that, mm. That's when it becomes controversial, but that's their biggest selling album. And it's one of the biggest selling albums of all time. Biggest selling album. Uh, of the sound scan era, etc. And what what happened there almost never works, right? Because there are any number of bands that you can talk about where uh, they move to a very commercial uh, approach or formula with, with an album in the uh, in the hopes of sort of spreading uh, what they have to a mass audience. And usually what happens is what Leon, described that you add some, but you lose some, or in many cases, you lose much, much more. Uh, you know, the, the history of, of metal and other genres are, uh, are riddled with, with those stories, uh, but so, somehow it worked. And one of the reasons that I think it works uh, in, in Metallica's case is that if anything, the lyrics got, uh, I mean, Enter Sandman perhaps aside, uh, the, the lyrics got even better uh, and deeper and more self-searching when you move to the more commercial album, uh, which is the Black Album. Uh, and, and then it falls off uh, with a different kind of controversy uh, with the, uh, the follow-ups after that with Load and Reload. Right, yeah. Right, because from what I remember reading is that up until 2008, they took like a dip in sales, I think. And then in the two, I forgot the name of the 2008 album. That's when they sort of came back up. Plus, Hetfield had something with his voice for a time, I believe. He had to like uh, have so much vocal training again and like mm-hmm. have his vocal cords. Uh, I forgot if he had it, uh, if he had some kind of treatment or something mm-hmm. like that. But there was a time when uh, they switched to doing a different style, not as hard as before. Mm-hmm. I forget. But either way, Bill, wouldn't you say anyway, Metallica's kind of undeniable? Yeah, of course. They lost fans, you know, sure. But it, it, to this day, even kids growing up, they're, 
you they still hear of Metallica. I'm not yeah. I'm not crazy. But wait, to but say here, that, right? no, you're right, you're right. So, but here's what I'd like to add on, right? So, in terms of like the way kind of Jim Hetfield saw it, he actually took it personally when he lost fans. That's what's so interesting. So it wasn't as simple as the way you're described. So you're right. I agree with you. But the thing is, it wasn't like, oh, yeah, like who cares? We don't need these people. Right. He actually wrote songs about how much it hurt him. Oh, well, yeah. I, no, I don't mean who cares. Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah, my bad. I didn't mean to say that. Yeah. I just meant to say that just Metallica is so legendary. Yeah. yeah. But, by, but my point is, that's not the way he saw it. Right. Mm. And so, oh, speaking of that. Right. I actually want to kind of go into this since now we're talking about it. Uh, I want to read another passage from the book. And actually, this is a great segue to the next thing I wanted to talk about. Okay, so this is kind of going off of what we just talked about with Headfield taking it personally, which I mean, obviously makes a lot of sense, right? So you have this guy who's really just, you know, not only a rock star, but in some sense, like the ultimate male figure, right? Mm -hmm. So especially in terms of like, uh, kind of archetypes, one would look at Jim Headfield, and they would look at him as a uh, uh, let me see, like the sort of ultimate expression of masculinity, right? And so I like Bill's chapter on resilience, where we talked about what it actually not just means to be a man, but what it means to be a human being. And so on the one hand, we have Jim Hetfield and sort of the kind of way that he expressed, well, some of the way that he rather responded to his fans leaving. And, you know, some people, obviously, many people criticizing him, probably media outlets criticizing him. And I love the way that kind of Jim Hetfield responded to it, which probably took him a long time. But this was, a, again, a great segue into what I want to talk about that. So this is the this is what Bill wrote in the chapter on resilience. Bill wrote, our instinct is often to cover our wounds, even to deny that they are there, or at least to pretend that they have healed and no longer bother us. The power of Hetfield's song derives not just from the mighty guitar riffs, but from its message that we should not conceal our psychological issues. We incur them in the midst of daily life and should proudly display them for the world to see. Breaking your teeth, this is a quote from the song, breaking your teeth on the hard life coming, show your scars, cutting your feet on the hard earth running, show your scars, bleeding your soul in the hard luck story, show your scars, spilling your blood in the hot sun's glory, show your scars, and uh, end of quote. Of course, scars can be used to impress and intimidate others, but that is not the intention in this case. Rather, the intention is to take pride in the way that simultaneously salutes your individual toughness and recognizes our common humanity. Yes, your scars, emotional or physical, are badges of honor, but they are, they are also indicators of vulnerability. Thus, we display our toughness not in pretending to be bulletproof, but in admitting that we bleed as easy as, as easily as anyone else. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite pa passages in the book. And so, Bill, can you tell us a little bit about what that was like? Yeah. Had feel some of that fan, fan backlash and how he decided to respond to it? Mm -hmm. Great. So uh, this ties into a couple of things. Well, one, Leon, uh, I mean, uh, I think Alan was referencing before, uh, the comeback album of 2008, which is Death Magnetic. And mm -hmm. this uh, is a song, uh, Broken, Beaten, Scarred, off of Death Magnetic. And uh, Leon, James. I caught that. I wanted to correct him. I'm what? like, is he just saying that as a nickname? Well, no, the, fu <laughs> the funny thing about it is the only one I've ever heard get away yeah. with calling him Jim or mm -hmm. Jimmy. Mm -hmm. uh, is Lemmy from Motorhead uh, used to kind of take a diminutive, talk to him in a diminutive kind of way or talk about him in a diminutive mm -hmm. way, right? It's kind of funny, right? Because you're talking about Hetfield as being this archetype of masculinity and, and whatnot, this imposing figure, right? And then we mm -hmm. 
uh, Lemmy would uh, sort of get the one up on him by, by referring to him as Jimmy. So I thought that was kind of funny as you were. That's up. so funny. Yeah, because like anybody named James, I would just automatically call him Jim. That's interesting. Sure. Oh, sure. yeah. Well, yeah, that's, oh, okay. that's a short. Yeah, that's I a didn't short. know you did that on purpose. No, no, no. <laughs> that's like, yeah, just that's like when you would call like somebody named Robert Bobby, I'd just be like, all right, Bobby. Oh, yeah, Bobby De Niro. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. That's so interesting that he would. Okay, so yeah, but uh, just not to go off track. You were saying, well, uh, no, yeah. no, it's just it's just kind of funny. Uh, yeah. yeah. But, but anyway, so. Yeah, I mean, the uh, Lars Ulrich, who has a great uh, amount of ego and braggadocio about him, uh, it, it was, was much more apt to do the, uh, the interviews and be the public face of the band. Hetfield doesn't like to do that, that kind of thing very much, right? And uh, he would always be saying that we don't care. It's nice to be hated again and all that sort of thing. Uh, but yeah, it's on Death Magnetic in uh, in a song called The Judas Kiss, where I think uh, you, you get some uh, not very thinly veiled admission from Hetfield as the, as the chief lyricist that he feels as if uh, he's been uh, abandoned uh, by the fans and even worse, that they've come to doubt that he could do what he had done once before. And so the, the song Broken, Beaten, Scarred, which you were quoting from at, at length there, uh, Leon, and, and uh, reading passage from, uh, from my book about, uh, really is in some ways speaking about that and responding to the sense of betrayal and, and the sense of, uh, of really being hurt, being scarred by the, uh, the fans thinking, well, you're all washed up, you're an old man now, you can't do it anymore. You're, you never were very much or, or, or whatever else, right? And uh, there really is a lot of vulnerability that Hetfield expresses in his lyrics, both directly and indirectly, going all the way back to the early albums, but all the more so uh, starting with the Black Album, which again, uh, although it was the, the biggest commercial success and had some radio friendly sounding uh, songs also is, is very searching. It's the, uh, the album with lots, I mean, all the way through, it's a great album and the deep cuts with songs like Struggle Within and My Friend of Misery uh, really are very thinly veiled uh, self reflections. Uh, and, and I just really very much like uh, the, uh, the lyrics that, uh, that Leon had read there and writing about the idea of displaying your scars, not for uh, the sense of being, hey, I'm a tough guy, look at this that I got in a knife fight kind of thing, but uh, for showing that we're all scarred and uh, we all bleed as easily as anybody else. But uh, again, it's been uh, a theme that runs throughout Metallica's lyrics from, from the earliest days and becoming in some ways more explicit uh, by the time you get to these later albums that we can not only persevere, uh, but rise again and actually uh, improve uh, and uh, grow stronger as a result of all the uh, shocks and, uh, well, even the trauma. You were referencing trauma before with uh, uh, the book you were discussing. Yeah. yeah. And so... Uh, actually, if you have something to say, I'll say it afterwards. I just Why do remember, you want to remember that part earlier where I wanted to ask something and I didn't ask it yet? Yeah, sure. Do you want okay. to go for it? So, Bill, okay, I have to say this. So, uh, Master of Puppets, right? Before I read this book, I thought Master of Puppets, you know, Master of Puppets, they're pulling your strings. Like, you know, uh, I, I thought that was actually about, 
I thought of two different things. I thought of uh, maybe the the government, maybe thinking of you know that uh, we're all just kind of um, living in a society, trying to you know we're, we're being conditioned to kind of do what's expected of us and and be like puppets. And and this master is you know our uh, leaders or or government. And then I had another interpretation one time where it's like, oh, the master is like your your ego and you're a puppet to your own ego and, and things like that. But I actually found it very fascinating that uh, it has more to do with addiction, uh, actually. And maybe it is still tied to that ego interpretation I have. But um, could you maybe speak on that, how master puppets and addiction kind of uh, go together? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I don't think you're wrong in, in your interpretations. They just sort of uh, are partial ones and ones that speak to you. And the uh, the album cover for Master of Puppets is iconic, right? Where uh, we have these the, this military graveyard and these malevolent uh, hands in the sky with very thin thin, practically invisible puppet strings connecting to them. So in a way, uh, that's referencing the song "Disposable Heroes" on the album Master of Puppets, which. Uh, is about the manipulation of, uh, of young men in, into war and sort of uh, thinking that it's glorious to die in battle for your country, et cetera, et cetera. So, that, I mean, that really is implicit there. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I mean, the, the song is, uh, is subtly, if you, if you read it about uh, addiction, the, uh, the line that stands out there is chop your breakfast on a mirror, which is really about the, the cocaine addict uh, looking for uh, another line to scrape together uh, the next day to kind of uh, fix the uh, that you know come down or or whatever off of off of the uh, the binge of the of the night before, and it it's easy for the uh, for the addict uh, to uh, you know become uh, blaming uh, the drug itself, and uh, this is where you say. Uh, Alan, right about about the ego, and I think that's close to the uh, the addiction metaphor that gets played out here, because ultimately it becomes uh, not about an external enemy, not about a powder in a bag uh, or a liquid in a, in a bottle, uh, but the uh, the way in which the uh, uh, the addiction itself uh, has implanted itself in the brain and is is running the show. And ultimately, as the, the story is told in, in Master of Puppets, uh, is just sort of uh, running the, the person uh, toward death and eventually will uh, kill the, uh, the host and, and move on. Not that it's the sort of uh, addictions, not the sort of virus uh, that spreads like uh, COVID from one person to the next, but uh, it's happy to do away with its host and, uh, and sort of go on from there. Right. And I love the flip that happens where it's like initially you're in control and, you know, going back to that fear of vulnerability that we were talking about, initially you're using the addiction to mask your vulnerability. Well, it's not an addiction at first. You're using the drug use or alcohol use to mask vulnerability or even mask the need for vulnerability. And then sort of little by little, right. And insidiously it becomes the master of, your, of the puppet, right. You are now its puppet as opposed to the way it was before. And I love that you even mentioned the fact that it's sort of delusional to think that as you're going on, that you're still in control, that that actually doesn't happen. Yeah. Even, even that bit that you included about how self-awareness isn't even enough, even if you are aware that um, your addiction is running the show, that you're a puppet to it. it it's, it's, it's very, very interesting. And also the part where uh, I believe you said you were at a concert with your friend and you heard 
uh, James yell something and he, and he heard something else, but it turns out he actually yelled, uh, fix me. Hmm. Right. Which kind of was more of a, and, and not, not fix me or maybe fix me in the, in, in the sense of I need to be repaired, but not just that fix me as in the sense of, you know, give, I need a fix. Like I need yeah, that. So yeah. There's a great double meaning in the, in that line, fix me. Right. Uh, because on the one hand, it's the uh, the addicts looking for a fix, right? Like the guy looking uh, to chop his breakfast on the mirror the next morning. But on the other hand, it can be the moment of clarity, realizing that I'm in the midst of an addiction uh, myself, and and something's got to be done. It, it, it's a topic that that's very personal to me. I don't know if we've ever gotten into this in, in previous discussions we've had, but I've I've been sober for 25 years myself. And uh, so from alcohol is my drug of choice, as they say in, uh, in the field. Uh, and I mean, I watched Tetfield uh, in his, uh, well, he was an alcoholic really more than, uh, than a drug addict in, in any kind of sense, as far as I can tell. Uh, but he's writing that song, Master of Puppets. Uh, you know, the song comes out in, uh, in 86, maybe it's written in 85. Uh, is really a full-blown alcoholic. It's it's kind of uh, not polite to diagnose somebody else, uh, but uh, I think in, in retrospect, uh, he'd admit it, but, but he's writing about a drug addict, right? So I, I think really uh, it's fascinating to, to psychoanalyze him uh, in retrospect that he has a sense that there's something not quite uh, right about the way that I'm living at the moment. Uh, and rather than confront it head on uh, and write about alcohol addiction, he's writing about drug addiction. That certainly looks a lot worse and a lot more, a lot more dangerous. And uh, that's something that I stay away from and, and all of that kind of thing, right? So anyway. Oh, that's, that's incredibly powerful. Like, I, I understand it sounds like maybe I'm just saying that, but if you, if you really take a moment to process that, that must be why those lyrics really spoke to you, right? It, it was kind of, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I have, I have that a lot with, so actually that's when I read the chapter on uh, addiction, there were certain things that I wasn't even thinking of addiction, either to drugs or alcohol. I was even thinking just kind of being run by uh, desire in a way mm. like I even thought of in terms of relationships even and there was something there like you know when you you uh, you hear a uh, song lyric or you're reading a passage in a book there's something there where all of a sudden your uh, focus really really dials in to the wording or the lyrics and, and it feels like something is resonating there I definitely felt that while uh, reading that chapter it, for sure. Like, can I ask what came up specifically? No, no, just what I said. Like, I think of, mm -hmm. I think of like uh, relationships, like being, for example, um, let's say there's somebody you're thinking about and you can't stop thinking about them. It's not bad. It's not necessarily bad. Maybe it's, you know, good thoughts, mm -hmm. let's say, but even then it's maybe, a fantasy. That's what you're saying. Uh, it, or, or you feel like you're being run by it. Like if you, yeah. if you chose to be like, let's say you did a self, I did a self analysis. I actually had this yesterday while, not yesterday, the other day while reading. And I had a, a moment where I'm saying to myself, you know what, why am I not thinking about anything else? This is really monopolizing all of my attention. I tried to be a little more meta about it. I'm like, all right, hey man, there's like bigger things going on. There's this like Ukraine thing. You got your family over here. 
you have uh, work, you have this and that, but you're really thinking about this girl a little extra than you than you need to. And then, as, but it would still kind of pop into my mind, these thoughts. And then as I was reading the chapter, I'm thinking, like it started to sort of, I, I don't know, bring sort of even more self-awareness to it. My attention dialed in and I even felt more relieved about, like I felt, I started to think less about it. And that, there you how, go. how come though? What helped? It's tough. I'm having trouble uh, narrowing down. It's more of a, if you would just trust that I had more of a feeling, yeah. I know it's better. And, to and so the reason why I ask is because on the theme of addiction, uh, my thinking is that like when we're thinking about remedies for it, they're virtually all the same, but they're just like expressed or manifested differently because addiction is all, it's pretty much the same. Fundamentally, it's the same, right? We're talking about fantasy. We're talking about escape, idealization, you know, whatever elements. That's why I'm wondering sort of what was it for you? I, I would say when you're thinking it in the context, thinking of it in the context of master of puppets mm -hmm. and just realizing that you're sort of you're literally yeah a subject to this yeah. desire to right? the fantasy right so what's what's great about that realization is for some people that's not enough like like how you wrote about bill like sometimes knowing yeah. that is not enough for me in that moment while reading it it actually felt like enough to kind of uh relax me relieve me a little bit because so like right. oh it's just like the song oh man what am i doing right now and then it kind of that kind of thing maybe that, that was sense? it maybe that was it maybe just a realization of it being like a fantastical addiction right that it's not real and just a form of escape maybe that was enough for sure. you and also it's not that bad i just didn't like how much it was monopolizing my attention but you know mm -hmm. yeah but yeah. do you know what that that insight particularly about relationship connects back to uh unforgiven too we were talking at the start, right? Uh, I don't know if this is a good place to get back to that or Shoot, please. Right. But but Unforgiven 2 is, is uh, basically a, a love story gone really darkly, tragically wrong, where uh, if we take the narrator uh, to be the same as in the first Unforgiven, he's found love and, and in that sense, shelter from the storm, right, which is the world that they imposing uh, their views and and causing harm, et cetera, in, in this other person. Uh, but it, it seems to be uh, a, a codependent relationship or uh, a relationship that, that's too, too much the focus, right? Uh, mm -hmm. that, that it's in, in a way another kind of an addiction, right? So as you follow the, uh, the lyrics, which are very subtle, uh, this is one that I had listened to hundreds of times and I don't think I had really made sense of it until I, I wrote about it for this book. Uh, it becomes clear that the, there is a betrayal uh, and the, uh, the narrator of the song can't deal with the betrayal and uh, essentially uh, kills or imagines killing uh, the woman who had uh, been his love and uh, had been the one that uh, he, he uh, had some connection with and bound together with and probably relied much too heavily on. Right, because uh, obviously, uh, if uh, betrayal uh, leads to uh, to murder, uh, it wasn't uh, a healthy, balanced relationship to start with. And even the thought of murder, right? I mean, we, we can certainly uh, get very upset uh, at the, at betrayal, infidelity in a relationship, but uh, th there has to be uh, that you know the, the people standing independently so that the relationship could come to an end. Uh, and each could uh, literally survive in this case.
Mm. Right. And, and that's, so this is where the addiction would come in because when we're thinking about addiction, right, it's again, it's this fantasy that you put this person on a place or on a pedestal, right. But you put them in a the place where they don't really necessarily belong. And in some way they kind of just like the drug, right. They become your savior. So I think a lot of it is reality based. So I'm not, so let me just be clear. I'm not saying insight is enough because often it's not, especially when it comes to like, like chemical addiction, which I'm not necessarily sure romantic addiction is, but, uh, but let's say when we're talking about chemical addiction, right. So there are like different elements elements to it. And obviously you have to kind of wean yourself off. It depends. You could be getting so much dopamine right. from, from thoughts. Right. But, but anyway, but, but you know what I think about when I think about romance, I mean, essentially it all falls apart anyway. Right. So whether you get the thing you love or you don't get the thing you love, I mean, eventually you start to de-idealize them, right. You know, the cracks kind of seep in and you're like, okay, this person is cool. And I really enjoy spending time with them. Right. But should I be obsessing over them? And should I be thinking this much about them? Probably not. Yeah. So, I mean, it was great for you that for you, like the insight was enough. Yeah. No. And, and sometimes there are other things that sort of uh, work as well. You know, sometimes you have to actually work at it yeah. or you have to maybe meditate, you know, you never know. No. Yeah. But, um, but right. No, but yeah. So the point here is it's also like, it's um yeah, it's like, it's not the savior or it's not the thing that you think it's going to be. And so Bill, would you say that in some way in the songs and the unforgiven ones that uh, I was going to say Jim again, the James, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so the James kind of realized that in some way that, you know, uh, this sort of meta insight where love wasn't going to save him, right. Or romantic love wasn't going to save him that, okay. Even though people suck and then, but you know, romantically, some people are good and it's us against the world, right. Right. That all of that is sort of as much of an illusion as, you know, thinking that, okay, you know, we as a community are going to be like, you know, it's going to be kumbaya thing where all of us are going to be there for each other, yada, yada, where he kind of went from maybe one sort of a shattered illusion, right, of the community. And then he went to another shattered illusion of romantic love and somehow came out of it all the better. Would you say that that happened? I, it's hard to know what happened uh, personally with him, right, and how much this is the imagined narrator uh, of the song, right? The, the biographical details are sparse. So I don't know, but you, you can imagine that, that that's a lesson uh, I know that I learned at some point in, in, in my life, right? That uh, making another person a romantic partner, a friend, whoever it is, uh, the, the sort of centerpiece and, and being total, making my happiness contingent on their happiness, that, that all of that is really toxic and, and doesn't work out well for anybody. Uh, I, I, I suspect that it's something that, that Hetfield figured out for himself. I don't, I don't know him so well to call him Jim like you do, Leon, so I'll just call him uh, Hetfield. Uh, <laughs> I was but, texting uh, him this morning. <laughs> but uh you know who knows you, you can certainly imagine that that's something that that he learned in one way or another whether it was romantically or not and, and that it gets dramatized in song for this narrator yeah and so just because uh there was a part of the resilience chapter that i also wanted to focus on before we just got off of it all together so i like and i like that we linked now addiction to it so it's interesting how he evolves from like a person who's just suffocating that part of him that vulnerability to then in some way becoming a trendsetter right so it's sort of like things come full circle in the beginning they're metallica as a band they're trendsetters right but then they kind of become more commercial but then as they get a little you know obviously later toward their career and now he's talking about vulnerability what he's essentially telling his audience is that hey 
hey, what it means to be a man is actually something that other what you believed it to be. So again, it's so interesting how it comes full circle where he goes from trendsetter to, okay, now I'm going to sort of conform to, okay, now I'm going to go back to being a trendsetter and do, and I would say maybe in this case, it's probably a bigger service than he would have done the first time around, especially for young guys. Oh, that's right. And, and you know what, the, the, this is uh, something that that's been important for me is just, I mean, Metallica was therapy before me, before I got into any kind of therapy. It was poetry for me before uh, I really got into poetry out of the poetry books. And, uh, you know, getting that from this guy who was alpha male uh, type, but not like the, the, the high school jock, but the, you know, the high school burnout uh, look was something that I could look to and aspire to be. And uh, to, to see him move away from that, from, from being, uh, you know, the, the guy who's hurting and putting on the pose behind the leather jacket that you can't hurt me to being the, the more mature, mature adult male uh, who's showing his vulnerability, not just in veiled terms uh, in lyrics uh, and stories, but really saying it uh, pretty forthrightly in as much as he's talked about his own addiction issues and, and that kind of thing. Uh, it, it, it certainly is valuable to me. And I think, uh, as you said, Leon, it does a much better uh, public service than anything that he's done before. Yeah. Yeah. And as you're kind of nearing the culmination of this book, what's so fascinating is that when we're thinking about, you know, his sort of plea in some way for ordinariness, right? On the other hand, what we're actually seeing is that like, um, he's not ordinary, right? So I'm wondering how he kind of meshed the two together, right? On the one hand, he's not an ordinary guy, but yet he's saying like, hey, an ordinary life seems to be the way to go, right? But I guess I wonder if he's actually saying that, um, if he's actually saying that, hey, even with fame, you're still pretty ordinary. And this thing that you're chasing just doesn't exist for anybody, whether you're me or whether you're somebody else, right? It doesn't really matter for all of us. We're all kind of the same. So it's like, again, it's sort of like addiction, right? And chasing that proverbial dragon, where no matter what, there is no sort of gold, there's no treasure or no gold at the end of the rainbow there's literally just this life and the people that you have around you would you say that that's somewhat accurate i, I think it is again I, I i hesitate to attribute too much biographically to him just because he is so close to the vest and, and doesn't reveal a lot but i i would like to imagine that that's the insights that that he's come to and and certainly uh his uh his marriage is now pretty long-standing and and was deeply troubled by his his alcohol abuse and by his mistreating uh his wife uh and not being faithful and that kind of thing at a at a certain point the details of that are fuzzy but that that outline uh is is pretty much out there and uh so so yeah uh i think when and when you look at the sort of things that he enjoys personally and recreationally he likes time in nature hunting fishing he likes working on cars that kind of thing uh, but i'm sure what he likes best of all still is getting on stage in front of 50,000 people and having them sing back the lyrics that he's written i mean it's not as if he's become uh, an ordinary guy and, uh, and doesn't get any kind of rush out of that, nor uh, do I think should he not get a rush out of that. Uh, so the, through uh, a Twitter exchange that we had uh, yesterday, uh, Leon and I were, were talking about pride 
and and the, you know the way it gets a bad rap. Uh, I mean, to suggest that he shouldn't take pride in what he's achieved artistically and take pride in uh, in the fact that uh, guys like us are sitting here talking about him on a, on a Sunday afternoon would be absurd, right? Mm -hmm. the, the problem uh, is uh, when the pride goes to the uh, the degree of arrogance where you feel like you can. Uh, treat people like they're, you know, just there to serve you, uh, which I think is a, a phase that that he did go through, from what I can gather biographically, and and certainly it gets reflected in in the lyrics, uh, you know, uh, the, the isolation that comes with that uh, is not where you want to be. Yeah, I love that man. Wow. And so I don't know. I feel like that's a great point to end it off on. I, do you do you have any questions or any more questions for Bill before we go, man? Uh, well, uh, Bill, as as usual, you know, I always ask this at the end. Uh, if we wanted to follow you, follow your work, uh, where could we find you? Oh, well, great. Uh, so one thing about this book uh, is anybody buys it, you'll see that I give my email address and my Twitter handle in there. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll give it to you uh, here. Uh, it's William Irwin, just the spelling of, of my name, at kings.edu. And you can find me, uh, my Twitter handle is William Irwin 38. And I, I like to think that a, a good book is a, a conversation starter and not a conversation ender. So if anybody picks up the book, the whole idea of it is not for some professor to ruin Metallica for you and tell you what it's all about. Uh, but the best compliment that I've gotten about the book is that it, it reads like a conversation with a friend. Uh, but it's a conversation where I do uh, all the talking, it seems like. So I'd like anybody who reads the book uh, to get in touch with me and, and tell me what you disagree with and, and why and what I left out that I should have included and all that kind of jazz, or, you know, I really mean that. And the same goes for folks who uh, aren't necessarily going to read the book, but were uh, a part of this podcast by listening and the three of us did all the talking. Well, it's your turn to, to talk now. So send me an email or, or DM me on Twitter. I don't like to get into Twitter battles and spats and that kind of thing, but just DM me and we'll, we'll communicate and that'd be great. I love a conversation and one that continues from a conversation like the one we've just had. I love that. Bill, again, love your book, man. I, it best. seems it's like awesome. it's it's sort of your magnum opus here, which is really wonderful. And I, I just I love everything that went into it, sort of the thought, uh, the sort of personal experiences, you obviously coming on the show. So again, thank you so much, man. Thank you, man. Thank, thank you. I'm a three-timer now. I'm a three-timer <laughs> three club. I love it. Thanks uh, so much again, you guys, for all your love and support. And uh, always a pleasure to talk with you. Absolutely, so man. We'll good. talk to you soon. Take care. Yep. Take care. Now. Bye. All right. First of all, epic. That was awesome. I know I say this sometimes when there's an awesome thing. I'm like, oh, I didn't feel the mm -hmm. time go by. But this was just, I feel great about it. Yep. So anyway, guys, if you want to follow us, follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And at Seize underscore podcast on Twitter. Like, subscribe. Hit the bell. Hit the bell. And again, if you want to follow uh, Bill, you can find him at uh, William Irwin 38 on Twitter. And his book's available at many different retailers, Amazon included. We're going to include a link of the book in the description below. And thank you so much for watching. See you next time.